right. Well, good morning, beloved. Great to see everyone here today. Thank you again for uh, the grace this morning. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 3 through 8. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And uh, I'll begin by first reading our text, and then we can seek to go through each verse and and apply it. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Here now are the words of the living and true God. Paul writes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. I want to draw your attention uh, first back to uh, verse 3 for a moment. And notice in verse 3 that Paul says, we always thank God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul was a man with a grateful heart. Um, and in verses 1 through 2, we saw Pete, uh, Paul's greeting. And then verses 3 through 8, we're going to see Paul's gratitude. Paul's gratitude. Now, this introduction, his greeting, and the gratitude is um, normal for how Paul opens almost all of his epistles. Um, if you look through those in almost every letter, you'll notice he first greets his readers, and then he thanks God for them, and then he proceeds into the message And what he really gets into here is a discussion about the gospel. The gospel. In fact, notice in verse 5 he says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel. Could literally be translated, the message of the truth, namely, the gospel. So Paul is thankful to God for what the gospel has accomplished. And he calls the gospel the truth. The truth. The word of the truth. But what is the gospel truth? What does that word gospel even mean? Well, let's start there. The word gospel, as it appears here in verse 5, is the Greek word euangelion, and it literally means good news. Good news. And it was originally a term used in a relationship um, to battles. Um, typically of civil wars, and in particular in the the Greco-Roman world where everybody um, within the city would be waiting to hear news back from the battlefield, and of course there would, this was before there were telegraphs or or anything like that, so there had to be these messengers. And you can imagine the anticipation of the city when all of a sudden they saw on horizon the messenger 
would appear returning from the battlefield and he would come flying into the city and usually right away it became somewhat obvious by just the appearance of his face what the news was. His face was smiling with joy and on his head maybe he had a wreath on it. Well then the entire city would break out in celebration and he would announce, we have won! And the word that was used to describe that is this word, euangelion, the good news, the good news of victory. And that is indeed the good news. It is the good news of Jesus Christ is the good news of victory. And so the word then came to mean the good news, the greatest news. And the gospel is certainly that. Now, what do we know about this gospel? What is the truth we have to share with man? How is this gospel to be delivered? What does the Bible say about the gospel? Well, first of all, we know a couple of things. First of all, we know that Jesus proclaimed it. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus proclaimed it. And then in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus instructed his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So whatever this gospel truth is, we're also, as followers of Christ, to proclaim it. But not only are we to proclaim the gospel, we are also to defend it. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So whatever this good news is, Jesus proclaimed it. He said we are to proclaim it, and we are further to defend it. Well, that's not all. A couple verses later there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul said that we should be striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, whatever this gospel truth is, we are to work at it together, standing firm in the unity of the gospel with one spirit and with one mind, the scripture goes on to say, striving together for the faith. And when that happens, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, we are to enjoy the fellowship in the gospel. The fellowship in the gospel. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And that's the unity that believers share through their commonality in the gospel. And then further, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore, beloved, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me, Paul says, in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. We're to defend the gospel, striving together for the faith, and we may even wind up suffering for it. Are you willing to suffer for the gospel? For as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then Paul told the Thessalonians something really interesting. 
He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And here we find out that we have been divinely empowered to preach this gospel of truth. And so this good news of the gospel is important enough that Jesus proclaimed it. He, he commanded us to preach it, to defend it, to labor in it, to have fellowship in it, to suffer for it, not to hinder it, never to be ashamed of it, and to realize that we've been divinely empowered and equipped to proclaim it. But what is the source of this good news? Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, it's called the gospel of God's grace. The gospel of God's grace. We also see in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, it's called the gospel of his son. The gospel of his son. In Romans 15, 16, it's called the gospel of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, it's called the gospel of Christ. In Ephesians 6, verse 15, it's called the gospel of peace. And one of my favorites, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 16, it's called the eternal gospel, or the everlasting gospel. And so that's its source. But what do we learn from that? Well, it's from God's grace. It's from the grace of God. It's the good news about his son. It's the good news about God himself. It's the good news of Christ. It's the good news of peace. And it's an eternal gospel. And so that's its source. It comes from God. It comes from God. But what about its content? What is this good news actually? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 clearly tells us what it is. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul writes, For I delivered of you as of first importance what I also received. And remember last week we saw in Galatians 1, 11 through 12 that the gospel Paul preached was not for man, but rather he received it by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul says, what I received from Christ, I have passed on to you. And this is of first importance. One, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's the gospel. What is it? It's the good news. The good news about what? The good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's good news. It's the only true good news, really, there is. And apart from it, there wouldn't really be any good news at all, would there? <laughs> now, <clears throat> this glorious gospel truth, this incredible good news, 
is the source of Paul's thanksgiving in Colossians 1, 3 through 8. He writes in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. What really is the cause of his thanksgiving is that they heard the gospel and now this gospel in verse 6 is bearing fruit in their lives and is increasing since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, as I mentioned last week, Paul never went to, personally never went to Colossae. Um, he says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians that he hasn't met them personally, but he knows all about their spiritual condition by what has been reported to him by Epaphras. And we know this because verse 7 also tells us that Epaphras was a faithful minister of Christ on the Colossians' behalf. He was the minister to Colossae. It's likely he founded three churches. If you want to hear about that, we spoke about that last week. But anyways, Epaphras here and now traveled over a thousand miles to seek out Paul's counsel, but also to report this incredible news of what God has been doing in Colossae. So Paul thanks God for that. Now, as we get into our outline this morning, we're going to see a beautiful picture of the gospel as Paul points out seven aspects in verses 3 through 8. And uh, Paul gives us seven uh, points of this gospel truth. And they're all pretty basic. And yet, how exciting it is to hear the good news of the gospel over and over and over again. I don't know about you, but I need the gospel every day in my life. And so I can't think of a more important message that we should be tuned into this morning. So let's look at these truths. They're listed there on the back of your bulletin. As we begin with number one, the gospel truth is received by faith. The gospel truth is received by faith. Let's go back to verse 3 and. Notice how he begins. He starts with the word we, and in saying we, he's probably um, including Timothy as he was introduced to be with Paul back in verse 1. So he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now this is where it all begins. Paul says, I want to thank God that you believe. I want, to, I want to thank God for your faith. I want to thank God that the good news is Jesus Christ and you believe it. And you know, there are plenty um, who didn't. For example, when Paul writes to the Galatian church in chapter 1, he's so riled up, he, he skips all this common pleasantries and, and such, and he goes right into addressing the terrible situation that the Galatians found themselves in. For example, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 7, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so, there are plenty of people who don't believe it. There are others who will distort it, and there are others who disobey the gospel. They may hear it, they may even accept it as truth, but they do not obey it. Romans 10, 10 verse 16 says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. So Paul said in Galatians, some pervert it, and in Romans, some just disobey it. Now this is a very dangerous position to be in. Um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, Paul gives a very clear and stern warning. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So for someone to distort or disobey the gospel is to put themselves in a very serious position. Remember, uh, in fact, what um, Peter said. Back in 1 Peter chapter 4, 17-18, through 18, he wrote, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the godless man and of the sinner? But in his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, you have believed it. You have not perverted it. You have not disobeyed it. You have believed it. And I praise God for that. And as your pastor, this is my prayer for us as well, that I can praise God because you have believed and obeyed the gospel. Now, when Jesus came to this earth, this was the gospel message that he proclaimed. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' message. The, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Uh, repent and believe in the gospel. And so Paul is saying to the Colossians, we always thank God when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So the Bible tells us that the gospel is to be believed. That's where it all begins. Now what does this word faith actually mean? How do we come to faith in Christ? Well, this word faith in verse 4 is the Greek word uh, pistuo. And pistuo means to believe, to trust in something, um, or to have confidence in it. Uh, faith simply means to be persuaded or convinced that something is true and to trust in it. Faith is believing. And it's defined probably best for us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which defines it this way. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith gives you assurance and certainty about um, unseen realities. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. You've never seen Christ before, yet you believe in him. And as you hope in the unseen, your faith gives it a present reality. Faith is not wishful longing, it is knowing with absolute certainty. Faith is the assurance. I'm assured of this, of the things that, that I'm hoping for. And notice, conviction. I'm convicted of this, by this insurance of these things that I cannot see, that I have not seen. So faith actualizes into the reality an unseen truth and, and commits a life to it. In fact, Hebrews 11, 7 uh, gives us a great example of this through the, the life of Noah. I mean, this is the kind of language I understand and go, yeah, this is a great little teaching point. If you continue on, you know, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, gives all these great examples of faith, of, of things that uh, the forefathers um, experienced and believed in, but they had not yet fully seen. Um, it says, for example, in, in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Now, what did God warn Noah about that he hadn't seen? Rain. Rain. Noah had never seen rain before. And so Noah, by faith, had to visualize rain coming down out of the sky because it had never rained before. Rain? What is rain? It's water falling out of the sky, Noah. I'm going to send a lot of it. And so by faith, Noah had to visualize enough rain coming down to, to flood the whole entire earth and guess what by faith noah believed god he believed god it says by faith noah being warned by god about these things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith so faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. So Noah's heart became convicted and his faith actualized a momentary action, though he had never seen rain before, yet by faith he built this massive ark in the middle of a desert. <laughs> and can you imagine all of the ridicule and mockery that Noah must have experienced? How long did it take him to build the ark? 120 years? You're still building that ark for, what you say, rain that's coming? And Noah just kept building along because Noah believed what God had said. And that kind of faith is precisely what we have in Christ. The Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but will have eternal life. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised 
on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, we didn't see that, did we? We, we weren't around for that. It's a couple thousand years ago. We weren't able to verify the resurrection with our own eyes, and yet we who confess Jesus as our Lord would say, I believe everything that's in this book. I believe it all. How? How on earth do you believe all those crazy stories that are in the book? Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. How then were we saved? Well, remember who Paul is thanking. Paul is thanking who? The Colossians? No. God. He's thanking God for their faith. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And so that's why we see in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that Paul writes, it is for by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, this, this faith is, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so ultimately, when we stand before the throne room of God on that final day, it will be God who receives all of the praise for your salvation. Now, what is this faith in? Notice what it says. Go back to Colossians 1, verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in who? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Our salvation is based on our faith in Christ and Christ alone. It is only faith in Christ that saves well, that was number one. The gospel truth is received by faith. We need to move on. Point number two, the gospel truth results in love. The gospel truth results in love. Notice verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. When the gospel goes out and, and changes lives, Faith is never alone. Faith always has um, love accompanied with it. All right? Um, faith and love are, are uh, inseparable virtues. Think about it. Faith apart from love would be uncaring, um, unkind. It would be cold. It would be orthodoxy without any love, without the warmth. It would be a dead faith. Likewise, love without faith would be all heart, but without no wisdom, all affection, but without no basis of truth. Genuine faith doesn't uh, exist in a vacuum, but will inevitably result in a changed life. And one of the visible and strong fruits of true saving faith is love for our fellow believers. Faith shouldn't drive us or lead us to isolation. Faith in Christ should actually purge us of our selfishness and give us a new perspective of love towards one another. Our love should be a reflection of his love for us. And I love what Paul says here, and I think this is very practical. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Isn't that something? Their love was uh, a non-selective love. They simply loved all of the saints and this speaks to uh, equal weights and measurements, equally. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says in Philippians 2, 2 through 5, Make my joy complete 
by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. See the unity? Do, not, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember the command that Jesus gave um, right before the cross. He said in John 13, 34, 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, right? Not your neighbor as yourself. He brings it to a new level. Even as I have loved you, eternally, sacrificially, fully, that you also love one another. And Jesus said, actually, when we do this, by this, by, by how well we love one another the way Christ loved us, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And when the indwelling Spirit of God came on the day of Pentecost, Christ gave us a, a new capacity to fulfill this new commandment. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that the love of God, notice, the love of God, has been poured on our hearts as believers on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. True godly love is illustrated for us in John 13, 1, where it tells us that Jesus our Lord, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you remember our time in John 13, you were probably never the same after the chapter. I know I certainly wasn't after I spent all those months in that chapter um, studying that. But Jesus really demonstrated and showed what, what the love meant. This is even before the cross. And uh, he shows us the picture image of him bending down, becoming a servant, a slave, as he washes all of his disciples' feet as the Lord Jesus Christ indeed loved them until the very end. That brings us to point number three. The gospel truth rests in hope. It rests in hope. Verse five, Paul writes, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Now, of course... Um, as you know, faith, hope, and love are that great triad of the Christian virtues, right? First uh, Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. And here they are again, though, in a different order. Uh, here we see faith, love, and hope. But uh, what hope is this? It is the hope laid up for you in heaven. This verb actually means to be reserved. It's like a, a divine... Um, layaway plan for you. Uh, again, we have to go back to 1 Peter as he describes this for us. He calls this our inheritance. Our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Did you know that you had a layaway plan in heaven? An inheritance. An inheritance, huh? What a fantastic truth that is. In Hebrews 6.18, I just had to go here because this is 
one of those texts that just, I tell you, you can stay in it for a long time. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews writes in Hebrews 6.18, taking hold of the hope that is set before us, and, and this hope we have in verse 19, as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So, hope for the Christian is like this uh, long chain. This long chain, and we're attached to it on one end, and on the other end is, is Christ. He's attached to it. And this long chain has followed Christ, and he's gone into the holy of holies, behind the veil... In other words, beloved, our, our hope is, is anchored within the veil. That's where our hope is. Where Christ is, that's where our hope is. And remember at the crucifixion, that after Jesus had said, it is finished, and he had given up his spirit to the Father. And it was at that moment, that, that massive curtain, the, the, the veil of the temple, from top to bottom, symbolizing no more temple. No more sacrifice. No more priests. Now we are kings and priests with Christ. Now you don't go to the temple to worship God or to experience God's presence. Now your body is the temple of God and God dwells in His people. What a fantastic reality this is. Our hope is laid up for you in heaven. And this is the thing that can drive our love for one another. This is what will do it. <clears throat> Think about this. God established our hope by making us sons and daughters of the king. Uh, he did not leave us as orphans. He has adopted us into the family of God. And the Colossians became sons and daughters also by believing the message, verse 5, that they heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Uh, listen to 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 2. 1 through 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as he is. Just as he is. What fantastic hope. The gospel gives us love for one another and hope for eternity. Faith and hope are inseparably linked. We believe and so we hope. That was point number three. The gospel truth rests in hope. Moving right along, point number four. Um, next we see the gospel truth reaches the world. The gospel truth reaches the world. Verse 5 ended with the gospel. Verse 6, which has come to you, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world. Now this is really an incredible statement if you consider for just a moment. Uh, what Paul is saying is that the gospel is not just one more um, mystery, religion, um, of the Roman Empire. This gospel is not just um, one more local sect um, in the Middle East no, uh, somewhere. No, the gospel is universal. The gospel is universal. 
Paul says, this gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. So, uh, for example, in, in Romans 1.8, Paul says to the Romans, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And then down a few verses later in Romans 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then Jesus would say things like in John 8, 12, Jesus would say, I am the light of the what? The world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then before Jesus ascended to the Father, he said things like he did in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we read last week the Great Commission where Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of what? All the nations. All the nations. So the gospel is not like a local sect. The gospel is for all the nations, and it always has been. Um, you can see it even in the very first covenant that God had made with Abram, even before he was Abraham, with Abram. The Lord said to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when he called him, he says, Go forth from your country, Abram, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God kept that promise, didn't he? Here we are, halfway around the world, 4,000 years later from this conversation, and we're all gathered together praising the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? In Revelation 7, 9, it tells us what's going to happen in the tribulation at the end of times. And John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What do we see there? People from all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. And I'm sure the disciples really needed faith to believe this because when they first heard it, they had yet to see this thing happening. And the gospel now is spread all across almost the entire world. In fact, uh, this truth is connected, um, I think, to the Lord's return because Jesus said something kind of interesting. He said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then once this happens, Jesus says, the end will come. The end will come. So sometime during the, the tribulation period, the gospel is going to reach the ends of the earth and whoever that very last person uh, that God has ordained before the foundation of the world, that, that last person is then saved, the end will come. So, the gospel is received by faith, it results in love, it rests in hope, and the gospel truth reaches the whole world. Point number five, the gospel truth re uh, uh, reproduces fruit. The gospel truth reproduces fruit. Um, notice 
in the middle of verse 6. He's still talking about the gospel. He says in verse 5, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It, 6, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. So the gospel is not merely a, um, a stagnant uh, system of ethics and morals and, and rules to follow. It is living and gro a growing reality. And it's no wonder the word of God is living and active, right? Hebrews 4.12. And when the gospel enters a divinely prepared heart, it bears fruit. But it doesn't just stop after it bears fruit and transforms the believer. Paul says it also increases. It, it spreads. And so those are the two um, ideas here. The gospel is both a, uh, an individual and a, a universal aspect. Individually, I can be saved. I can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't have to wait on the phone and, and he's talking to all the rest of you and it's like, yeah, here's the number, you're number 55 on the list, you've got to wait you know, forever. No, we can have a personal, immediate connection with Christ, so it's individual and yet there's a universal aspect to it. So it's both bearing fruit and it's increasing. Paul tells the Colossians he's thankful the gospel had done both among them since the day you heard it. Well, the gospel produces fruit both in the internal transformation of the individual as also the external growth of the church. And you see that in the book of Acts as the early church first begins to grow. Internally, they need to first faithfully trust in God. Um, they're beat up. They're thrown into prison. They're tested in a great many ways through persecution. And their witness becomes stronger and, and bolder. They're no longer afraid what the, what the religious leaders will do to them. Where before the Holy Spirit, remember, they were all locked up in the upper room. Closed doors, locked doors. But we see a great example of this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when Peter and the apostles were no longer hiding behind locked doors. And they proclaimed, we must obey God rather than men. And then down in chapter 5, verse 42, it says, And every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And then uh, later, this is a great one, in Acts 9.31, we see this example of the effects of the church growing inwardly and then resulting in the growth of the church outwardly. It says in verse 31, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. And, and were edified. They were being sanctified. Notice, and walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. They were multiplied. So you have that fruit bearing on the inside and then spreading on the outside. Let's go to number six. The gospel truth is rooted in grace. The gospel truth is rooted in grace. Of course it is. Notice the end of verse 6. It says, and understood the grace of God in truth. And, you know, Paul just can't get through one paragraph without bringing up grace here, right? Because grace is at the heart of the gospel. And, you know, all other religions are based on the assumption that if man works hard enough, uh, he can maybe earn his way to God or earn his way to heaven. And Paul is always swinging the axe at the root of legalism. 
and he's always chopping down the tree of works, and he's going to really chop it down later in chapter 2 when we get there. But for now, he just begins to whack at it. God is freely, sovereignly, uh, mercifully forgiving sin due to nothing that you have actually done, but by his grace, this unmerited, unproven, unworked favor of grace, which here he calls the grace of God in truth. And grace is simply God giving us what we do not deserve and what we cannot earn. And yet he gives it graciously. And I want to demonstrate this to you just through a couple of verses. Acts 11, verse 18, it says, when they heard these things, they felt silent. And, and what they had heard was uh, the report from Peter about what he was doing with the Gentiles and Cornelius about how they were being saved. And it says, and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has noticed, granted repentance that leads to life. And so they recognize that repentance unto eternal life was a gift of God. And they said, God has given this gift to the Gentiles as well. How gracious. And then listen to what happened to Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. This is a great story. It says, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us and she was a seller of the purple fabric of the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord, oh, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So Paul brought the gospel, but it was the Lord who opened her heart. By grace you have been saved. So the Lord is the one who opens the heart. He's the one who gives eyes to see, ears to hear. He is the great physician. So the gospel truth is rooted in grace, and then finally we made it, guys. The gospel truth is reported by people. It is reported by people. Look at verses 7 and 8 as we close. Paul writes, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here he introduces Epaphras, and, and he's thankful for Epaphras. Um, do you know why? Well, because somebody had to take the gospel to the, the Colossians, and Epaphras is the one who did that. And what did they learn from Epaphras? The grace of God and truth in the gospel. He's the one that gave it to the Colossians. They had heard the gospel from a man, Epaphras, our beloved fellow. This is really slave, and I love that. See that word there, uh, our dear fellow servants? That's the doulos in the Greek. Uh, he is our fellow slave of, of God, our, our fellow minister, and I'm so thankful to God for Epaphras. And so listen, the gospel truth is, is declared and reported by men. There, there's got to be a human channel, and that's us, the church. All right? What do you say? You shall be my what? Witnesses. Witnesses. We are his witnesses. In Romans 10, 14, listen to what Paul says. This is about as clear as it gets. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a what? A preacher. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of what? Preaching. Preaching. To save those who believe. 
We are God's preachers to a world who has turned its back to God. This glorious gospel and all that God has done funnels down uh, through um, men who will share the gospel with others. Man, men and women. And, and if you're not doing it, well, then God's going to find someone else who will. <laughs> but what a joy it is to be used by God for His glory. This is the gospel. Paul thanks God for it. And I thank God for it because I don't know where on earth I would be. Where would I be? Where would I be? Well, I better end there. Praise be to God. Thank you for uh, going through these verses with me. If our, you are in need of prayers this morning, I invite you to please come forward as we stand and sing. Let's praise the Lord. He is our living hope. Thank you.